0: Let us pray together. We call to mind your word to the Laodicean church, Lord, you reprove them for imagining that they were rich, wealthy, needing nothing. Your apostle rebuked the Corinthians for imagining that they were full and in no need. Oh, but we are needy, Lord, we are needy. We look to ourselves and we see our sin, our weakness, our folly. We remember that we know no truth unless you teach us your truth, that we dare not trust our hearts, that we must only trust you and your word. And so humble us that you may teach us today, Lord, shatter our false assumptions and traditions, grant us to know and to love Your truth as you speak it to us in your word. In Jesus' name, Amen. And indeed, the truths in this verse, Matthew 20, 28, do challenge a lot of um, popular Christian traditions, perhaps some that you have held, perhaps some that that some hold. We need to remember that uh, we're to hold to what God's word says, even if it means giving way uh, to a cherished tradition that we've always thought to be true but find in the light of God's Word not to be true. We're taking a second pass at Matthew 20 verses 17 through 28 because this section is a unity. That's not very difficult to see. Verses 17 through 19, uh, Jesus announces His coming to Jerusalem to die, that He's going to die in Jerusalem. But in that section, He doesn't say why Why is he going to die in Jerusalem? Why does he allow himself to be killed? Why does the Father allow him to be killed? The answer is not found in that section. Then in the next section, we see Jesus lay down the need for humble service, verses 20 through 27. And he tells us the importance of humility and service in, in the kingdom of God, but he doesn't provide us a model. And no reason for his going to die, no model for service. But... Verse 28 ties a bow on both. Verse 28 closes both loops. It explains why Jesus goes to Jerusalem to die. It explains why the Father not only allows it, but it is the Father's plan that Jesus go to Jerusalem to die. It also shows us who is our model as to our need to serve one another in the kingdom of God. So today we're focusing on that verse, verse 28, and dig into the meaning of it. That we just only touched on lightly last week, as I promised last week we would. And our outline is really very simple. Roman numeral one, a ransom. Jesus says, Even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but rather to serve, and to give his soul as a ransom in the place of many. A ransom. I think it best just start out asking and answering the question, what is it? And I very much encourage you to fill out the outline, look at the verses we look at together. What is it? We'll put it very simply first. What is a ransom simply? Uh, I rarely give you Greek words, but there's a, a point to it this time. The Greek word for ransom, translated ransom, is lutron, in English letters, L-U-T-R-O-N, and it derives from the verbal stem luo. It's the first verb that any Greek student learns because it's so simple. Luo simply means to loose or release. I loose, I release, luo. Lutron comes from luo. And what lutron means then is a price paid to free a slave or a hostage. Uh, In Greek word formation, if you add that Nu, T-R-O-N to a stem. It means this is the instrument by which something is done. This is the means by which it is done. So a lutron is the means of luo. It's how you loose a captive. The price you pay to loose a slave. The lutron is the ransom. The price paid. It's a technical term. It's often used in the Greek papyri of uh, the manumission of a slave. It's the price paid to free a slave from slavery. The Lutron is paid, is pay, is paid and the slave is luod, if you will. He's, he's loosed. He's set free because of that price. So that's, that's just simply put. Therefore, it necessarily is three things. And here, the understanding of many Christians stops and doesn't grasp these simple truths. So let's make sure that we see the full value and don't steal glory from the Lord or his gospel or his work of salvation by stopping short of what the Bible teaches. A a, a lutron, a a ransom, necessarily, first of all, is a substitute. So if you pay a lutron, the master doesn't keep the lutron and the slave. You follow me? He accepts the lutron and the slave goes free. Or the army that has a, a war hostage doesn't accept the Lutron. In, in classical Greek, it's usually the plural form, but that doesn't matter. I digress. Uh, accepts the Lutron and the hostage is set free. It's a substitute. Jesus underscores that in the preposition he uses to give his soul as a ransom in the place of many. The preposition on tea. Exchange for them, taking their place because of what he pays they are freed. So it is a substitute, necessarily. Secondly, it is specific. And as I say, here's where many Christians' understanding does not go with what Scripture teaches. A lutron is not just simply taken and laid out there and offered, and then any slave that wants to come and be ransomed, you know, this is just to whom it make concern. It's not for anybody, it's just a Lutron. So, come and get yourself ransomed. That is not the picture here. The picture is, I'm paying the price to loose this slave. I'm paying the price to loose this hostage. And when I pay the price, that person is freed. He is ransomed. He is set free. And that brings us to the third element. It is necessarily a success. It is necessarily a success. That is to say if you ransom someone, that person is ransomed. So you pay a substitutionary price for a specific person or persons, a group of slaves, a group of hostages. And once you pay that price, that person is freed. That person is redeemed. He's no longer a slave. John Murray, a great, uh, a great Theologian now with the Lord in a really helpful book called Redemption Accomplished and Applied wrote this The language of redemption is the language of purchase and, more specifically, of ransom. And ransom is the securing of a release, not just offering it to make it possible, it is the securing of a release by the payment of a price. So you can't think of it being rejected because I'm not offering it to the hostage. I'm giving it to the one holding him captive. And so he is freed because of what I do. Uh, The sentence is carried out. Uh, The gift is effectual. And the person for whom a ransom is paid is set free as a result of the payment of this ransom. So that's what a ransom simply is. It is a substitute specifically offered and successfully offered to free a hostage or a slave. So now, the question that we want to ask more existentially, more personally, why do we need one? I mean, Jesus says that he's giving his soul as a ransom like that should interest us. and I, I think it absolutely should. So we need to all understand why this is so important to us. Why do we need one? Well, first of all, because we are captives to the guilt and power of sin. Number one, we are captives to the guilt and power of sin. And here is where many people don't get the importance and and the wonderfulness of the gospel. They don't see themselves as slaves. Uh, Like Jesus says in John 8.32 and following, where he says, uh, 8.36, where he says, who the Son sets free is free indeed. And the Jews say, well, we've never been slaves of anyone. So he's offering the freedom that only he can give, and they don't think they need it. First of all, that's just a lie. They've been slaves to, to a succession of nations and powers, right? But then he goes on to say, well, anyone who does sin is a slave of sin. He's talking about the slavery of sin. The reason why Americans aren't as interested in this as we should be is we've lost the whole idea of a holy God who is over us and judges us, and He's not just a reflection of our hearts. He's not there to help us fulfill our dreams. He's the creator and He's the judge. We're judged by His laws. He's not judged by ours. And so we don't think of of our sin, well, first of all, even as being a thing, because all we care about is our values, and we pretty much live up to those we think, but we've forgotten about His laws and the fact that we don't at all live up to them and that they're the standard by which we're judged. So we don't think about sin as being a great problem. Sin is a great problem. And the the, the more we think it's not a problem, the more it is a problem. So we are captives to the guilt and power of sin. And this starts with Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, just before the flood, then Yahweh saw the evil of man was great on the earth and that, listen... Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In Hebrew, rak, ra kol hayom, only evil all the day. This is how God sees man. And you say, well, but then he did the flood and everything changes, right? Because Noah and his family were righteous. Well, you read the chapters right after and they're not that righteous. Besides, at the end of the flood in Genesis 8, God repeats this exact thing. Now this is not something that the flood solved, it's something endemic to the human heart. Our thoughts go away from God, not toward God naturally. Psalm 53 verses one through three is just one of many sections. The wicked fool says in his heart there is no God. They act corruptly and commit abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. This is what God sees. And God looks down from heaven, verse 2 says, upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who has insight, anyone who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned back. Together they've become useless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Unless we think that this is, well, that's that, that grim, sour old Old Testament. You know, give me something happy and joyous like the book of Romans. Well... Glad you suggested it. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18, Paul just quotes this in a number of similar verses. What then, he says, are we better, we Jews? Not at all. Romans 3, 9, for we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Don't go past that too quick. We're all under sin he pictures sin as if it were pressing down on us we're under the power of sin the authority of sin the guilt of sin we're all under sin the apostle says as it is written there is none righteous not even one these things don't change from old and new testament because human nature doesn't change from old and new testament Uh, the passage of time just gives us more sophisticated ways of sinning faster it doesn't make us not sinners There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they've not known If one day we we could have kidded ourselves, that isn't true of America. Today, you see all the celebrations of abortion and of particular abortions and new and new ways of disfiguring and killing the innocent and the helpless and the clueless. And you see now, now the mask is being ripped off. Divine restraint is being removed. And we're seeing what people really are apart from the grace of God. And here's the real kicker, verse 18. This is the root of it all. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Self-seeking, not God-fearing. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are in the law so that every mouth may be shut and all the world may become accountable to God or perhaps better guilty before God, liable before God. And then there's the famous Romans 3.23. Notice the two tenses of the verbs. For all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All sinned, past tense, and fall short, ongoing present tense, of the glory of God. It's not history past, it's history present for our race. Romans 5.12 gives us the root of it. When did this start? Romans 5.12. Turn there with me if you haven't been already. Uh, and let's focus on these next few verses in Romans 5. I hope in a moment your eyes will be fixed on the Word of God, which will, will not be written on my mustache, as one of my professors at seminary used to say. He'd say, you're looking at me like the answer's on my mustache. Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Who's that one man? Adam. And he was named Adam, which means man. Not because he was figurative, he was literal, but named man because he was the representative of mankind. He was the federal head, if you will, of all our race. And through him and in his act of sin, we all were pledged in sin. That's when all sinned. When Adam sinned, he was our representative. And he brought the slavery and the guilt of sin and of guilt uh, to all of his natural descendants. And so we read in verse 18, the first part, through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. And verse 19, the first part, through the one man's disobedience, the many were appointed sinners. So it's very important, you may not see this at first, but trust me for a moment, it's very important you see all these things are actual things, they're all realities. And When Adam sinned, it didn't make us hypothetically sinners. We actually became sinners. His sin was not an offer to sin. There is no such thing as an innocent human being. Every child of Adam is born spiritually dead, born a sinner, born guilty. It's not something we become. We don't start off innocent, much less righteous. Children of Adam, natural born children of Adam start out in Adam's sin. So let me just insert here and get your minds going. I need a redemption that's not hypothetical. Amen? I don't have hypothetical guilt. I don't have hypothetical sin. I don't have the offer of sin. They're realities. Adam's sin brought sin on me. So I need some act of redemption that doesn't offer me redemption. As we'll see in a moment, that would do me no good whatsoever. I don't need to be made savable. I'm not savable. I'm lost. I don't need to be offered redemption. I need someone to redeem me. I don't need someone to lay out a redemption price and hope that I'll come and grab it. I need someone to pay the price and set me free. Because the guilt that I have and the sin that I have, they're actual. They're not hypothetical. And so uh, we see more about that slavery um, in verse, uh, chapter 6, verses 60 and 17. Do you not know that when you go on presenting yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin leading to death, of obedience leading to righteousness. And then he says, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you obeyed the gospel basically. But we were slaves of sin. Paul says in so many words. And what do slaves need? Well, we need redemption. What is redemption? Somebody paying the price to secure our freedom. Well, why can't we do that for ourselves? Why why can't we just uh, exercise that wonderful free will we're told we have and and just make ourselves not be sinners anymore? Choose not to be sinners. As one of the worst sermons I ever heard by a very famous evangelist, so-called, preaching to inmates in a prison. Couldn't believe my ears. He said to them, but I, I, I want to tell you that God has given you the most wonderful gift he can. And I thought, oh, he's going to preach Christ." No, he said, God's given you free will. You can decide to be better people. I thought, Oh, that is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. So the truth is, we cannot free ourselves, number two, because we cannot free ourselves. Why do we need a ransom? Because we can't ransom ourselves. We can't redeem ourselves. We can't free ourselves. Theoretically, a slave could. Theoretically, a slave might work up extra money somehow and buy his own freedom. In our case, this is not a possibility. And just to give you two of the many verses that show this, you're in Romans. Now turn to Romans chapter 8, and I'm asking you to point your eyes at verses 7 and 8. I will back up to 6 for context. Uh, Paul says, "...for the mind set on the flesh... I would translate it the attitude of the flesh or the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the spirit is life and peace because, well, why is the mindset of the flesh death? What is the flesh, first of all? Well, it's my natural nature in Adam. It's it's the way I'm born. It's what I have in Adam. Well, what is that mindset produced by my old Adamic nature? The mindset of the flesh is hostile towards God. That is to say it's hatred towards God. It's not neutral. You say, oh, but I think all men are seeking God. Well, God doesn't think all men are seeking him. God says all men are fleeing from him. We just read that twice in Psalm 50 and in Romans 3. None who seeks after God, no fear of God before their eyes. And why is that what we're reading? The reason here Uh, Like C.S. Lewis once said, everybody I hear talking about man's search for God, you might as well be talking about the mouse's search for the cat. Because the sinner doesn't look for the holy judge. The sinner does what Adam does, looks to flee from him. So the mindset on the flesh is death. Why? Because the mindset of the flesh is hostile toward God. For, now listen, it does not subject itself to the law of God. Okay, we kind of see that. For it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh are not able to please God. Now, there's the truth that many Christians have not grasped fully. Those always go together. A a low estimation of the effects of sin always leads to a low estimation of the glory of the gospel. So the more people think men still have an ability Godward, the less they really see the need of salvation from Christ. Now, these verses say, it's not in my ability to subject myself to the law of God. So you say, what about free will? Does man have free will? Defined biblically, yes. Defined as uh, non-Christian philosophers do, well, no. They think of the the will as if it's something floating out there, you know, detached from me, making decisions for me. But biblically, all the will is, is it's my heart making choices. And what is the state of my heart? I'm free to make the choices my heart wants to make, but what's the state of my heart? We just read it. It's hostility toward God. It lacks the ability to subject to the law of God, and it's not able... To please God. So where would I get the ability to redeem myself? Where would I get the ability to ransom myself? If it were even possible. But then of course you factor in the fact. That one sin is an infinite crime. Because I've sinned against an infinite God. How many sins does it take to be, to be a lawbreaker? Just one sin. Now I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. But if I ask for a show of hands. Of how many people have only committed one sin. I trust, well, no honest hands would go up. (laughs) No honest hands would go up, much least the hand of the person behind the pulpit. So no, ransoming ourselves is not a possibility. We cannot free ourselves. We lack the ability in our very soul to free ourselves. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, you could turn there. See it for yourself. Now, whether from goodwill or pride and stubbornness, there are Christians who want to argue for ability in men. And I would just ask you to think honestly, if Paul wanted to say that we lack all ability to bring ourselves to God, to choose God, to commend ourselves to God, what what word would he choose that would describe a person who had absolutely no ability to do anything good? You know, I'm thinking the same thing. But look at Ephesians 2:1, and you were what's the word? Dead. dead. No, you were ailing. You were feeling poorly. You were you were experiencing soul discomfort. You know, like to use a baseball term. You were you were on the spiritual ten-day uh, list. No, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. But I wasn't inactive. <laughs> I still did stuff what I do verse 2 in which you formerly walked so there it is walking dead according to the course of this world according to the ruler of the power of the air spirit is now working in the sons of disobedience i was hooked up i was hooked up and i was lined up with all that among whom we all also formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were hello by nature children of wrath Even as the rest, the whole lot of us, all of Adam's natural descendants, dead in trespasses and sins, haters of God unable to submit to the law of God so let me just say here and be as as honest and forceful and biblical as I can if you come to me with the gospel that tells me that Jesus has done wonderful things for me and if I could just find it in myself to have the good sense to take a hold of them and submit myself to the gospel and say I have no other hope than that you've done nothing for me or any other sinner Because I never will. I never will say I need that kind of salvation. I never will submit myself to that message. I never will want to be reconciled to God. Reconciled to God? I'm trying to make life without God work. I'm trying to make... Isn't that what we see our our fellows doing busily since Genesis 3? Trying to make a world safe from God? Isn't that what every human philosophy is about? That is anti-Christian? That is not under the law of God? How to make a world safe from God? How to live a happy life without God? I'm not interested in the gospel like that. For To get me interested, you've got to have something that actually has the effect of transforming me. Something that actually frees me. That actually secures for me a new heart and a new nature. That actually saves me and doesn't just offer me salvation. Offer me That's great. I will say no and go my own way. Save me? Well, now, let's ask. Let her see. How is Jesus the ransom then? How is Jesus the ransom? Well, look at his words here. Even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but rather to serve and to give his soul as a ransom in the place of many. So what is the nature of his action? The nature of his action is to serve and to give. Not simply to offer, not to try. He doesn't say, and thank God for all eternity, he doesn't say to serve and to try to give his soul. A ransom for many, or to give his soul a hypothetical ransom for many? No, he came to serve. Now, again, if if he did something that that did not secure my salvation, it wouldn't serve me. It wouldn't do me any good. But he came to serve and to give. That's the nature of his action. What What is the capital of the of the ransom? You ransom this guy in gold. You ransom that guy in silver. You ransom the other one in bitcoins. Well, what's Jesus' currency? What does he offer? His soul. His soul. His personal life. Now, it's important he says this, as we'll see and understand better in just a moment. But connect this then to verses 18 and 19. How does he give his soul? Well, verses 18 and 19, by allowing himself to be delivered over to the chief priests and to the Gentiles, by allowing himself who had the power to send demons scampering like like kicked dogs and stop a storm with a word, to allow them to mock him and whip him and condemn him to death and in fact crucify him. And a shameful death and a mockery of a trial. He will allow all that. That's how he will give his soul. So he's not giving his soul in public service. He's not giving his soul by opening a soup kitchen or by gardening or, or by opening a housing center. This is not what he's doing. He's giving his soul, his actual life. He's giving it over to a bloody death. So the capital of the ransom is his soul. And what's the mode of his ransom? in place of many. So he is taking their place. He is a substitute for them. Now, if you want to understand the gospel biblically, which I encourage you to do, you need to notice this. So when he says that he's going to be a ransom in the place of many, is there any understanding in which, well, any biblical understanding in which he can be a ransom in the place of many But then later they can go and suffer the penalty themselves that he already suffered so that he pays the price and they pay the price. Well, that's not the plain intent of the words. Remember, a ransom is always specific and it is substitutionary and it's what? It's successful. And it is offered in the place of many, so those for whom he dies will be freed by his ransom. They will not suffer slavery and penalty and guilt as they would have had he not died for them. So he came to offer his soul as a ransom in the place of many. That's his words here. Now, let's look ahead, and I encourage you to turn there, to his words in Matthew 26. Because he's going to reflect on this same truth again at the Last Supper and we're going to gain a little more insight. Each time he he talks about his death, he tells us a little more. And these are his last words before his death. And of the cup of the Last Supper, he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, look, do you see how the same elements we see in 2028 Are given greater specificity here we know more about what they mean here so what is the nature of what he's doing well it's the establishment of a covenant and if you study the bible you learn it's the new covenant that was prophesied in the old testament so his blood is establishing a covenant and so how does he die he dies by shedding blood he's not going to be poisoned or strangled he's going to shed blood in death. So this is my blood of the covenant. This is how he gives his soul. As I say, not in public service, but in death, in bloody death. And it's poured out for many. Well, that's a repeat of what he says here. We'll look at that in a moment. He says, for many, he says, a ransom in the place of many, he said. Here he says, poured out for many. And to what end? Well, the ransom secures the liberation of a slave or a hostage. What does his blood do? It secures forgiveness of sins. Well, now, that's just the liberation I need, right? Because that's just my problem, isn't it? Sin is my problem. If I'm going to be set free, something has to be done about my sin. And it's not going to be me. It's not going to be by me. It needs to be done for me. And Jesus says, that's what he is doing. He's doing what I can't do for myself. He's offering himself for my sins, for the forgiveness of my sins. And he says, for many. So it's the same thing as in 2028, in the place of many. So Jesus is using language here with the assumption that his Jewish disciples will understand him. And I'm sure, well... I hope they did. I know they eventually did. They were slow to understand, uh, which we found great encouragement in many times. But what they should have—they should have heard an echo of a verse in the Old Testament. Does anyone offhand know what verse in Leviticus we're going to? We've been there before. Seventeen, eleven, and do turn there, Leviticus seventeen, eleven. Again, not not appearing on my mustache. It will be in your Bibles. Leviticus 17.11. Now, the legacy standard Bible is is good and literal and helps us. For the life of the flesh. Now, I do have to tell you that literally that is the soul of the flesh. The Hebrew word nephesh, soul, in the Greek translation Uh, The Greek word psyche, the same word Jesus uses. So the soul of of the flesh is located where? In the blood. It's in the blood. And I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the soul, by the life. So this is the central idea of all Old Testament sacrifice. That if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that worshipers brought a spotless, innocent victim, whether a, a lamb or, or what have you, and that spotless victim shed its blood in death in the place of the offer. The offer would actually put his hand on, on its head as a symbolic transfer of, now this is my proxy and it sheds its blood. It gives its soul in my stead as my substitute. And as a result of my offering that in faith, I'm forgiven. Now, the New Testament points out that none of these animal sacrifices actually purchase salvation because the blood of bulls and goats can't atone for human sin. But they all pointed forward to what Jesus is talking about the real final sacrifice. And all the people who trusted God's word were forgiven in fact, but not because of the animal's blood, but looking forward to the blood of Christ. But, but again, look at the wording of Leviticus 17.11. What, what is the idea of the sacrifice? It is substitutionary, it's effectual, it's personal. That person who offers that animal is forgiven as the animal sheds its blood, pours out its soul, if you will, in his stead. Blood shed out as the vehicle of a life for a life. And this is Jesus' language. This was his mental furnishing. When he's saying what he's saying, this is what's in the background of his understanding. Of course, believing the Old Testament as he did, having uh, actually inspired it. So uh, he did believe every word in it. So therefore, because of what we've read here, putting together those three verses... Matthew twenty twenty-eight, Matthew twenty-six twenty-eight, Leviticus seventeen eleven, Jesus pays a ransom for sinners by shedding his blood for them. It's his soul for theirs, his life for theirs. It is penal and it is substitutionary. P E N A L, meaning they are judged, they're condemned. The law falls on them instead of the offerer, and so in Jesus' case, God's wrath falls on him for the sins of many, the sins of God's elect, the sins of his people, instead of them. He is judged by God that they might not be. He's condemned, as Romans 8 says, that they might know no condemnation. So let's come finally then to the words for many, a ransom for many. And again, we'll understand what Jesus means by this if we understand the prophetic background turn to, actually please turn to Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. Now that is the prophecy of the suffering servant. We often say Isaiah 53, but it's really 52, 13 to 53, 12. It's it's five triplets of verses. It's three verses, three verses, three verses, three verses, three verses, is this whole uh, prophecy of the suffering servant. And we're going to see in here... The same elements that we said are the elements of a ransom. And what are those elements? It is substitutionary, it's specific, and it's successful. So let's see it here. Let's just uh, start with verse <clears throat> four, tempting as it is to do the whole thing. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Now, what do you see right there? Well, you actually see all three elements, don't you? It's for us, the people confessing this. It's effectual. He's actually carrying these things. And what else is it? Substitutionary. There are sorrows and griefs, but he's carrying them. Yet we, geniuses that we always are, esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our peace fell upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. And again, you see all three elements here, don't you? It's for us, the believing confessors, that he made this sacrifice. It is specific. It is substitutionary. There are transgressions and iniquities, but he's being punished for them, and it's effectual because he's not punished and then us punished again <laughs> because if, if that is the case, then he did not satisfy the, the justice of God, but that is not what we're being called to believe. He is exhausting the judgment of God. He's drinking the cup to its bottom. The chastening for our peace, what does that mean? The punishment that brings us peace. Oh, that makes me think of Romans 5. Therefore, having peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Excuse me, I'm sorry, I, I, it makes me think of it and then quote it wrong, evidently. Uh, for having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He purchases our peace, He achieves it by His punishment. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Substitutionary, specific, successful. In fact, the whole thing is introduced by a statement that what he comes to do, he will do. Look at the first verse, Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted like only God really is. So what he comes to do, he will successfully do. His atonement will be successful and will be, success- uh, will, will be effectual. And finally, verses 11 and 12. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. Well, there it is again, the many as he will bear their iniquities, just like Jesus says, give my soul a ransom for the many. So for the many, as he will bear their iniquities, theirs, he will bear their iniquities, successfully, specifically, and substitutionarily. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He will divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgressors, but here it is again, yet he himself bore the sin of, what does it say? Many, and interceded for the transgressors. So this is what is in Jesus' mind as he speaks of the fact that he came to serve and to pour out his soul as a ransom for many. This opens the mind of Jesus to us. And as you see this, you run through Scripture and you just see it again and again and again. You see it in His words, for instance. For instance, remember in Matthew 11, He says, No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. And then what does He say? And the one to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Well, what about that choice? Turn to John chapter 17 with me. Now here's Jesus' high priestly prayer. This is what would be rightly called uh, the Lord's prayer because this is the Lord's prayer. The Lord prayed this prayer. Lifts up his eyes to heaven. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And now look at verse 2. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life. So this speaks of the eternal election of God. From the mass of fallen humanity, God elects his people. He chooses without condition, out of sheer sovereign mercy, he chooses people to save, and he gives them to the Son to give eternal life. Now, something that's important to keep in mind is that when God makes decrees, when he elects, That always includes the means for for accomplishing what he chooses to do. So when he chooses to give people to the Son, that the Son may give eternal life to them, it includes the means of the Son giving eternal life to them. And, And what is part of the means of his doing that? Redemption. His giving his soul a ransom for the many, for these ones the Father gave to him. A theologian, A. A. Hodge, said very well, redemption is in order to accomplish the purpose of election. God elects them to be saved in Christ. Redemption is the means. His giving his soul as a ransom for them. So how Jesus gives life to God's elect, whom God has given him, is he gives his soul as a ransom for them, for that many. That's the prophetic background. Let's close by looking at a prophetic foreground, F-O-R-E, prophetic foreground, something that lies in the future, and we're going to be back in the, in the book of Revelation again as we began the service, so we'll end the sermon. I do encourage you to please turn to these. Second easiest book in the Bible to find. First being Genesis, second being Revelation, so it's the last book in your Bible. Revelation chapter 1. Now, with everything we've studied, let's, let's, let's look at this. With all of that in mind, let's look at this afresh. Revelation 1.4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. So he's writing to the churches, to those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, to saints, to the elect. Grace to you and peace from the one who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us, blessed present tense, loves us now, loves us always and, and released us from our sins by his blood. What verb do you suppose is translated released? You have no idea, but it's the verb luo what we started the sermon with. And luo makes for what word? Lutron. And that means what? I have no idea, you say. That's the word that means ransom. In other words, he looses us from from our sins by his blood. This is talking about the same thing Jesus talks about in Matthew 20, 28. This is how we're freed. This is how we're loosed. That speaking to the elect, he says, loves us, released us from our sins by his blood. Not hypothetically, but actually. That's the kind of ransom I need, an actual ransom that actually redeems me. Adam didn't hypothetically secure my condemnation. I need a Savior who doesn't hypothetically secure my redemption. I need one who actually redeems me. And such a Savior is Jesus Christ. Released us from our sins by His blood, and He made us to be a kingdom. He made us to be a kingdom. Priest to His God and Father. To Him be the glory and the might forever and ever. Amen. Now, somebody who's brand new to this sort of teaching might say, well, but but I I know the Bible also talks about the world and talks about all. The, the, The Bible says Jesus died for the elect, but But what does that mean, the world and all? Well, John shows us exactly what it means. Look at uh, Revelation 5. We'll start us there, and the next verse will take us all the way. Revelation 5 Glorious scene in heaven. And John sees these living creatures and these elders in heaven and he hears this new song in verses 9 and 10. And they sang a new song saying, they're singing to Christ, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation." "...and you made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth." This is what world means. Not just Israel, but every people, tribe, and tongue. God's elect are not just found in the nation of Israel, as some Jews would have thought. They are not exclusively the elect of God. His elect are from every tribe and tongue and people and nation... And we know that we're speaking of the elect because he purchased them. And when he purchases them, they're his. It's effectual. His blood purchases them and secures, what did we see in chapter 1? That they'd be freed from their sins. But even more vividly, turn to chapter 7. And this is a a really helpful, uh, to understand what the Bible teaches, really helpful and enlightening chapter. To understand what is meant by the word world and all. So where does chapter 7 start? It starts with this, this vivid and arresting uh, 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 narrative of the vision of the 144,000. Now tell me, real question, not not um, rhetorical. Who are the 144,000? Are they 144,000 Californians, 144,000 Arizonans, Texans? What are they? They're Israel. They're Jews. They're from every tribe of Israel. Okay, well, so is that it then? That would be the assumption of many Jews. Is that the elect? Because there they are. Now, in Revelation, we've got the whole world blaspheming God, rebelling against God, uh, shaking their fists in God's face as He judges them. But here's these 144,000. They're saved. Is that the elect? Is that it? Israel. Oh, now, look at verse 9. After these things I look, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Well, there it is. No, it's not just the nation of Israel. No, it's not just people in Asia Minor. No, it's not just people in the Eastern Hemisphere or the Western Hemisphere. It's people from all nations, tribes, and tongues. Like the hymn says, elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth. These are the people God has chosen from all over. And Jesus is the only Redeemer and the only Savior for the entire world. There there aren't others. There aren't like the uh, people uh, in, in, in the times of ancient Israel thought gods and deities for different areas. There's just Jesus. He's the one and only Savior of the world. Anyone in the world who wants salvation may only look to Him. And they'll find it in Him. And when they find it in Him, they'll find that they found it in Him because of the sovereign grace of God, sending Jesus to save sinners, sending Him to serve and to give His soul a ransom in the place of many. So, let me speak to someone who's come in not knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. As, as I was one day coming to a church hearing the gospel preach hearing Christ preach and, and I was listening and, and I just felt like I was in a large church and I felt like the guy knew me his words were piercing my heart even though he'd never met me and never did <laughs> but what he preached was piercing my heart so lost friend have you felt the bondage of sin and guilt in your heart? have you seen what a, what a cruel relentless taskmaster sin is? have you tried to shake yourself loose for it? and found what a failure you are, how impossible it is? I know that feeling very, very vividly. You never really know how deeply bond you are to sin until you try to break the bonds. Have you tried to break, found out that you can't break? Well, Jesus alone has made perfect redemption for sinners. Jesus alone saves the lost. Look to Jesus in repentant faith. Call on Him. Throw yourself on His mercy and look to Him to save you. And you will find in Jesus forgiveness, you will find redemption, and you will learn that even your believing in Him and even your calling on Him is a gift of God by God's sovereign grace. Believing, friend, let me just urge you to rejoice in the freedom with which Christ has freed you. He, Gave his life a ransom for your freedom, for your liberation. Give him all the glory and honor for your salvation. Keep none of it. Despise anyone who would tell you that part of it is due to you. Do like the the saints and the elect in heaven and cast your... the elders in heaven, cast your crown before him. And give all honor and praise and glory to him uh, for saving you. Keep nothing for yourself... And then, as He calls us to do, follow Him in using this new freedom to serve others. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this Word from Your Word. We thank You for our Savior, the Lord Jesus. We thank You for His glorious salvation. As the writer of the Hebrews says, this is just the sort of high priest we need. A high priest who can suffer with our weakness and and show compassion and mercy on us, but even more, a high priest who can make a perfect atonement for our sins to cleanse our conscience from dead works that we might serve the living God. We thank you for this great Jesus and his great salvation and his glorious gospel. All glory and praise and honor to you and to our Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.